what's going on, people? I would like to welcome all of you to another Q on One edition of the Talk to Q Radio Show. My name is Quincy, and this is my show. And with the Q on Ones, what I like to do is interview people. Sometimes they can be local entrepreneurs, or they could be someone um, who's doing their thing worldwide. Um, so it's an opportunity for you to get to know these people up and close and learn their story and what gave them the passion to do what they do or provide the type of service they provide. So please sit back and enjoy the show. And please be encouraged to share. A lot of people, including myself, kind of do their thing by word of mouth, you know. So the more you spread the knowledge about the show, then the more people who can tune in and grow this thing and make it bigger. And it also gives more support for the people who I bring on the show who are looking to get their product or services out to the masses. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. He played in some very memorable movies, including one of the most iconic silver screen scenes of all time that we see at least once a year. He won Best Young Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture in 1984 for his role in the movie The Toy. Born in the Golden State of California, but raised in the Garden State of New Jersey, please welcome Mr. Scott Swartz to the Talk to Q Radio Show. Scott, how's it going? Good, good. Good to be here. Good to talk to you. All right. Glad to have you on. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, you were, what, roughly a teenager when you got your first movie movie role. Now, most kids want mm-hmm. to be a firefighter or a doctor when growing up. Did you always want to be an actor? How did that come about? It happened four years earlier. I uh, was going to a movie club with my father. It's an older crowd. And one of the guys there, after knowing me a couple of years, said, hey, you're very outgoing. I'm producing a commercial. Would you like to try something like that? Talked about it. Okay, fine. Went and did it. On the flight home, he's like, you're great. You got to keep doing this. Okay. Saw casting director, saw agents, <laughs> signed. And the next thing you know, I'm in showbiz. Well, just that simple. Huh? Didn't happen overnight. You know, I mean, you know, you use commercials and then it's commercials. And there's mm-hmm. a couple years of that. And then I did off-Broadway and then I did Broadway. And that was the beginning of 81. And I got the toy about a year later. Yeah, almost. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you're you're filming the toy, and this is your first movie role, and you're on the set with Richard Pryor, uh, Jackie Gleason, Ned Beatty, to name a few. At the time, I guess you know, were you old enough to appreciate the level of talent you worked with on a day to day basis? You, you were around what, twelve, thirteen years old? Thirteen, yeah, when we started. Uh, I knew who they were. I knew their careers. Like I said before, I was a movie buff. I was a movie junkie and TV. So it's like from Jackie Gleason, I knew The Hustler. I knew The Honeymooners. I knew The Jackie Gleason Show, you know, and other films that he had done. Smokey and the Bandit. I was a monster Smokey and the Bandit junkie. Yeah, yeah. So I knew who he was. Then, of course, you know, Richard Pryor between Silver Streak and Stir Crazy and Bingo Long, uh, you know, my my parents were never language people. They didn't care if I heard an obscenity, you know. They would say, just, just don't go out yeah. and just say words like this. But you can hear them. It's not a big deal. Um, so I was a big Richard Pryor fan. You know, you, you, you meet them, and they're nice, and you get on a set, and you just sort of, you know, you blend in. I wasn't a kid in the mental sense. Yes, my age is 13, but mentally I was way ahead you know, of, of my peers, you know, people my age. So it's like, you know, I'm asking Jackie Gleason, you know, about George M. Cohan 
and about doing vaudeville and the Jackie Gleason show and the honeymoon. Those are not typical questions of a 13-year-old. Not at all. You know, um, you know, and talking to Richard Donner about the omen and talking to Ray Stark about working with Barbara Streisand. I mean, there were so many different things, you know, that, that intersected, you know. Uh, I mean, Ned Beatty, of course, is in Superman, and Richard Donner directs Superman. And, of course, you know, that's my era. You know, I'm nine years old when Superman came out. It's like, oh, my God. It, it, it truly was not just an unbelievable experience that, to this day, I cherish. And, you know, I miss, you know, Richard and Jackie. I saw Ned last year. He's not doing so good, but he's hanging in there. Uh, God bless him, Richard Dick Donner. Our director, he just turned 90 the other day and still kicking and doing great. Yeah, you know, I made good. lifelong friendships. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. Okay, well that's great. That's great. And Richard Pryor is my favorite comedian of all time, and I think he was a master at storytelling when it came to his shows and his comedy albums. Um, but what was he like off camera? Did you have a chance to form a relationship with him? I was friends with him from the day I met him until the day he left us. He was not what you would think. He was quiet. He was studious, reading books, underlining, highlighting things, wanted to learn. Very observant guy. Um, now, of course, once you wound him up, uh, he would go. You know, he would just let loose. And uh, right. he, and I, he and I spent a lot of time together between on the set, offline, video games. We went to amusement parks. We went to the movies. Um, I, I mean... You know, again, this isn't thinking back. You know, our relationship was important to the film, so I, I think that he wanted to bond some kind of a friendship with me to begin with before he met me. But then once he met me, it was just easy. You know, uh, I, I, I watched and saw a lot of the old B-Western movies made in the 40s, you know. And he loved a guy named Lash LaRue, who was the master of the bullwhip. And when he said that, I said, I know okay. that. And I named off a couple of movies, and he's like, how do you know that? So, you know, you got two people from absolute opposite sides of the spectrum. You know, one grew up in a whorehouse in Peoria, Illinois. The other one grew up, you know, my father was a window cleaner. My mom worked at a 7-Eleven, and I was just common ground, you know. And uh, we, a lot of shenanigans. I mean, there was a lot of jokes and stuff he would tell me. Literally today, if he was sitting next to me and I was that age and he was the age he was, he'd go to jail for the stuff that he told me. <laughs> but back, back then, there was no such thing as political correctness. There was no such thing as only Cor- the kid. You can't talk around him. You know, and he would talk about girls and boobs and asses and every other damn thing. And, I mean, I'm pre-puberty, so I really didn't have experience with girls yet, really. And I would just go, that right, sounds right. good. And half the time, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, but I would just go, that sounds good. <laughs> and probably to him, since he grew up in that type of environment, he probably thought that, you know, maybe you did know about it since he knew about it at such an early age. Now, you mentioned him not being able to say some of the things back then. Now, and when you think about the plot of the movie The Toy, this was a rich white kid who purchased a black man as a form of entertainment. Um, a toy, as the movie title suggests. Do you think that would play out in today's racially charged society? I mean, what was the difference back then? Him. Well, him and society in general. Not everything back then was racist. You know, it was 
right. just the white kid sort of buying, you know, the, the black guy. But that's not really accurate. I mean, listen, anybody, if they said, hey, listen, we want you to play with this, this rich kid for a week, we're going to give you three grand, anybody's signing up for that job. I don't care who it is. This ain't minimum wage we're talking about. Fun way, it's a friendship. It becomes educational for the kid, you know. Uh, and there's no racist bias. It's not like the kid is racist. And, oh, I, you know, no, he just sees a guy. I want the black guy. I want the black man. You know, okay. Um, <laughs> so, you know, in today's society, could you get away with it? Maybe. Maybe to like 2% because, again, seeing it that it's Richard Pryor. This is a guy who lived on the First Amendment right. I mean, it's the freedom of speech, freedom of whatever. And he pushed the envelope every which way but loose, you know. So while there is a small percent, oh, you must like slavery because you were in this movie. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, it, it, it's so right, far-fetched right. that it's just ridiculous, you know. Um, none, of, none of us thought that way. It wasn't presented that way. It's just people now looking back saying, oh, this, oh, that, you know, and they've done it in all different types of, of genres, be it music, movies, you know, uh, what was it, Kate Smith, who did the, the national anthem for the uh, God Bless America for the Yankees for years, and all of a sudden it came out that in 1919 or 1929, she sang a song that may have been considered racist. Mm-hmm. But here we are 80 years later, 90 years later, and they're going back. It's like, come on. You know, it's like Al Jolson. I mean, the first talkie in the history of cinema is Al Jolson, who's a Jewish guy, doing blackface. Mm-hmm. Was he racist? No, of course not. You know, he fell in love with jazz in New Orleans, which is, and it was all predominantly black people. Now, what's he doing in a black jazz club if he hates black people? I mean, it's just, there's no common sense to it. You know, they haven't quite gotten that bad yet. But, you know, it's a more open-minded thing that people need to have. And they've kind of just taken life a little bit too far. And I say that as a white, I say that as a white guy. My father was a window cleaner floor waxer. My mother worked two jobs that he could pay the bills. This, we were not even upper middle class. We were, we were low class. You know, but my parents worked their tushies off to make a better future for myself and my my younger brother eventually. So they worked, and I worked. I mean, you know, you say, "Oh, we're in show business." It, listen, somebody's got to do that job. It's me or somebody else, whoever they hire. Somebody got to do that job. You know, that's not privilege. It was a job. It was getting up at six in the morning, taking a shower, being picked up by six thirty on a set, eight, ten, twelve hours a day. You know, so. You know, the, the privilege thing, the racist thing, I, I, there's just a lot of faults in it, and it gets too overbearing. You know, we have the freedom of speech. If you don't like something, turn the channel. Don't listen to it. You don't have to. Nobody's holding a gun to your head to listen to, to, to George Carlin, Sam Tennyson, Andrew Dice Clay, Robin Williams, Richard Fryer. These were the geniuses of their time. Somebody goes, oh, well, they must have been. It's ridiculous. I understand. As a talk show host, um, freedom of speech is important to me. And then you have to consider the era as well. Certain things happened 
back then. And yeah, we're a lot more politically correct now, so it wouldn't fly today. But um, I don't see the reason. Kind of like um, the whole uprising, I think it was last year or maybe the year before last, about the Baby It's Cold Outside song uh, for Christmas. Was it uh, Dean Martin, I believe? And they said mm-hmm. that it was too sexually charged or something. I mean, it's, you, you you can't judge things by today's standards. It's ridiculous. It's, but, but it's something from 75 years ago. 70 years ago. And you're, and you're going to try and and compare it to today's society, baby, baby, it's cold outside. So yeah. this song offends people, right? This is what they say. And yet right. we have people in music today just spouting off the N-word and suck this and do that, and that's okay. And I'm like, right. wait a minute. This makes no logical sense whatsoever. If you're going to claim freedom of speech, my God, there's one thing that's very innocent. There's no, you know, sexuality, you know, levy there, nothing. And here you have the words and you have what's spoken in the videos that go with, oh, my God. But that's okay. I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. It has to be either all or nothing. And if it's nothing, like I said. You don't have to watch. You don't have to listen. The movies that get made, we talk about violence in, in society and mass shootings and all this stuff. But people go to see Rambo. Oh, we'll go see Rambo, and then they'll complain about violence in, in society. It's like, hey, dude, where did you just go and see? Where did these people come up with this idea? Tens of millions of people bought Call of Duty 3 and 4 and 6 and 8 this and that video game and all it is is shoot them up, bang, bang, kill, kill, kill that you're giving to 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds. What are you doing? Where do you think they learn this stuff from? Where do you think they gain knowledge and go, oh, well, this seems okay. This is cool. Come on, people. Very inconsistent and very hypocritical. I agree. It's everywhere in our society. No matter where we go, what we do, people say one thing, they do another. But if you call them on what they do, they won't say anything because they know that's what they said. It's like, I right, wait a minute. Come on. Get it straight. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not a problem. And so uh, about a year after the toy, uh, you get casted for a role in a movie called A Christmas Story. You play the character Flick, and you have what is probably the most memorable scene in all time in any holiday movie when Flick gets triple dog there to lick a f- icy flagpole in um, cold temperatures, and, of course, his tongue is stuck. That was almost 40 years ago. How does it feel to know that a new generation will watch that movie and that scene for the next 50 years? Uh, you know, um, it's, there's no real way to describe it, okay? Thousands of movies get made every year, thrown on a wall, 99.9% of them fall to the ground. Nobody remembers. You get to a Christmas story. Now, I had done the toy. I had just finished another film called Kidco, and I had just finished shooting, and I get called in for a Christmas story. I didn't even read a script. I talked to Bob Clark, the director. He wanted to go have a hot dog. He missed lunch. We went and had a hot dog together. We came back. We talked for a few minutes. He said, thank you. And I left, and that was it. Then I get Christmas story. Okay. Um. I mean, it's an ensemble film. It's a wonderful film. You know, every piece of the puzzle was perfect. 
you know, Bob did a great job casting it, directing it, editing it. Uh, Gene Shepard's writing was fantastic. Uh, Bob let me have a lot of leeway. He kind of just gave me the rope, especially on the, the tongue and the flag for the thing. The script says, flip, stick, tongue, to pole. That's all it says, flip, stick, tongue, to pole. And Bob, you did Bob, the rest. Bob, 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 Bob said to me after we had done a read-through and whatever, he's like, listen, you come up whatever you want to come up with. I'll, we'll figure it out. Let's see what works, what doesn't work. Okay. So we get to the scene, and I shoot this, and I do what, I, what I'm thinking is funny and whatever and what a kid would do and all that. And he goes, that was good. That was good. Just give me more. Just go, go really, go, go really go overboard. I said, okay. So I did more, and he goes, no, nope, you know what? What you did the first time, that's better. Let's do that again. Okay. And so what you see is basically what I came up with. The fact that people have made it into $4 million films, Nobody had any interest in – MGM didn't even want to put it in the movie theaters. Nobody had any faith in it other than Bob Clark, Gene Shepard, and Darren McGavin. There were only three people on the planet. And this is a sweet movie. It's got to hit the movie theaters. The fact that with all of that, that it's got everything going against it, and yet it, it was in the theaters for a little while, the four weeks, whatever it was, it gets on the home video, and it starts to find a following then it's fortunate enough to be a part of the MGM package that Ted Turner bought for uh, TNT and TBS, then the marathon, and here we go. It's already, you know, had been done before. The Wizard of Oz, they tried it for a couple years. After the second year, they quit doing it. Uh, It's a Wonderful Life. They did it for two or three years. It wasn't getting any ratings. They quit doing it. Christmas Story is it. It kept going, and it was more, and you keep doing it. It's a cash cow. They make tens of millions of dollars on this film, and people still want to see it, and it's revered. You know, as far as I go, you know, I, I can only say that I'm honored that in Hammond, Indiana, the home of Gene Shepard, they have a little welcome center. It goes from Illinois into Indiana, and there's a, a state-run facility. It's a welcome center. And those people got funding for like sixty or seventy thousand dollars to do a bronze statue of me that would last I've, until the end of time. I've seen you know, there's less than thirty bronze, There's less than thirty bronze statues of actors in the world. I'm not counting like Hall of Fame and stuff like that. I mean just out and about in the world. And the fact that I'm one of thirty is there's there's there is no words. Now that statue and four dollars still gets me a cup of coffee and a bagel with cream cheese at Dunkin' Donuts. It is what it is. But <laughs> it's, it's leaving behind a legacy of something that brings a smile. It brings joy to people. It makes people happy. So something I did was right. Something Bob Clark did was right, you know, amongst everybody else in the film. So it's, it's an honor to... I think that is great. I know plenty of people who... They don't feel like it's Christmas time until they see that movie. And for new generations to be so accepting of it and to enjoy, and especially that scene, because that's the scene that everyone remembers, um, I think is great. I really do. There is a reason why. You've got people that are in their 70s now, let's just say, who are in their, you know, 30s, 40s, whatever. The film came out, they liked it. So they show it to their kids. Their kids liked it. Now, their kids are already in their 40s or early 50s. They showed it to their kids who are now showing it to their kids. There's one 
key thing to all of it, and it sounds crazy, but it is true. The movie is in color. Now, of course, it's a 1983 film, so of course it should be right. in color. Had they shot it in black and white, the younger generations would not have accepted it because they're not used to black and white. They're used to everything being in color. I agree. Because it's, I because, agree. because it's in color and it's this fun movie that mommy likes, daddy likes, grandpa likes, great-grandpa likes, okay, they'll watch it with the family. So it's been passed down. All right, so you hit on these movies right out the box to start your career. And, you know, there were other child stars at the time in the in the early to mid-'80s, like Gary Coleman, Corey Feldman, um, Josh Brolin. What was it like being that, that well-known as a child, and how did it affect your childhood? I mean, do you feel like you had one, or were you working all the time? I worked that, that year pretty steady. You know, once I hit my teen years and hit puberty, I kind of looked different, and I only did a couple of little things. I, I did a TV movie of the week in eighty. Five with Liza Minnelli and Corey Haim and Jeff Damon. Um, but I didn't work all that much because puberty was kind of setting in and I kind of looked strange and weird and just kind of changed my thinking. Um, a hometown boy in central New Jersey, I knew everybody. You know, there were a few times, you know, later when I go to the mall, you know, I go someplace and people, and, and I could hear them whispering 50 feet away. That's the guy. That's the guy. I could hear them, you know, and, and my one friend, Andy, who went everywhere with me, he'd say to me, how the hell do you hear these people? I said, dude, it's like radar. I can just hear it and I know it and give it 30 more seconds. They're coming over and they're going to say something. And within 30 to 45 seconds, somebody will go, excuse me, aren't you that guy? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so nice to meet you. And back then, there's no cell phone cameras. There's none of that crap. So people didn't take pictures. You know, once in a while, somebody say, can I get a can, if I find a piece of paper, can I get an autograph, you know, once in a while? Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, you know, I was, I was a regular kid. My friends, my friends in New Jersey kept me pretty grounded. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a part of the Hollywood scene because I didn't live in California. I lived in New Jersey. So, you know, that kind of just kept me in, in that spot. Okay. Now, this is something that I'm just curious about. When you're a child actor – is it a situation where you're managed by your parents or are you able to have an agent or, or some type of financial advisor or, or is it just a matter of preference? How does that normally work? Well, let's, well, let's see. You know, was my dad my manager? Well, no, not really. He was just my dad. And, you know, if you had an audition, my agent, that of course I had in New York, she'd call him up. Okay, he's got to go in tomorrow for a 7-Up commercial or whatever the hell it was or a, a play or a movie, whatever it was. And he would take uh-huh. uh, I actually, my father actually did hire a uh, financial advisor who proceeded to rip me off. Oh, wow. And in the, in the funniest, in, I, I say this way, in the funniest way possible. Now, of course, this is not, I don't find any of this out till later. Um, in the state of New Jersey at the time, it was like 750 or 800 bucks to incorporate. So everybody said, you got to be incorporated because then you get tax breaks and this and that. Okay, fine. So it should have cost me like 750 or 800 bucks, whatever. And the guy charged me like seven grand to do it. So instead of seven, 750, 800 bucks, it cost me $7,000. Good gracious. You know, and of course, by the time, you know, years later, when I get a hold of the checkbook and I see what the hell went on and I do a little bit of investigating and I go back, I moved to California, so I'm back in New Jersey, whatever, and I'm looking the guy up and he's dead. 
well, that's the end of that, you know. And he would tell my parents, listen, you've got to spend this much money or the government's going to take it. So buy a new car every two years and do this. And he, he should have said is take it, invest it in a 401k, put it in a money market account, those kind of things. Right. That's not what he did. So, you know, he was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And, you know, he did what he did. But, you know, listen, that's already, you know, God, it's almost 40 years ago, you know. What am I going to do? I'm going to play the victim. Oh, my God, I got ripped off. Oh, well, life life sucks. Move on. I get that. That's all you can do. I think there's been other things that have happened to other people that they've held on to for 40 years or 30 years. And it's like, listen, grow up. Become mature. Grow a set of balls. Excuse my French if you're a boy, if you're a guy. And just, you know, become an adult. And it is what it is. <laughs> And you don't let it run your life. You have to run your life. You can't let shit that happened 30 years ago run your life. That's just ridiculous. Well said. So we move on to the the 90s. And you've done all kinds of TV and movies by this point. And in the mid-90s, you got into a different genre of movies. And you started producing um, producing adult films. And so what were some of the differences between shooting a Hollywood movie and shooting an adult well, film? And how did you, you get gotta, involved? You got to kind of, you got to be exactly, that's the first question you should ask me. How do I get involved? Um, I just was, I mean, <laughs> you're out and about in LA and you meet people and you meet some people in that industry. Okay, fine. And I had no interest in going into that. He just called me up one day and he was a pal. I knew him from being out and about, whatever. He's like, Hey, I'm doing this movie. I want you to be, and I'm like, I don't do that stuff. He's like, no, 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 no. It's not like what you think. You know, you're just playing a jester in a king's court, and you're going to have a costume, and you don't have any sex, none of that stuff. You just make jokes. And I went, that's all I have to do is make jokes? Yeah. Hey, you know, you got to put a roof over your head, food on the table. It's it's a couple of hundred bucks, 250 bucks for a day's business is great. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have regular steady work. Great. So I do it, and then there was another one he wrote and another thing. And the next thing you know, I had done like a half a dozen whatever. And um, one of the people who ran a production company said, hey, you've been in films, real movies. Did you know anything about production at all? I said, yeah. You know, I kept my mouth shut, my eyes and my ears opened. I learned a lot of things. I know this. So we sat down, and I'm like, you know, you, you asked the example. Well, a mainstream Hollywood crew is 70, 80 people, and an adult crew is 8 to 12 people depending on, you know, how big your budget is or how small your budget is. You know. um, so I, I helped run one of the companies for a little while, you know, and uh, there's not much difference in the pre-production part of it. Is the production part different? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, people are having sex. That's just what that is, you know. And I don't have to right. stand there. I don't have to watch it. I'm someplace else. I'm in the makeup room. I'm getting paperwork together, making sure I got people's IDs and their HIV tests or whatever, I, you know, because I did everything. You know, oh, can you help me out? Can you read the lines with me? So absolutely, because if I read the lines with them and they get better at it, it goes faster and it's better for the production. Let's get it done. You know, so I did all that stuff. You know, I produced a few things for a couple of the companies. Okay, fine. I've never got, you know, I wasn't a, a 12 months, you know, 365 days a year. I didn't do that. There was a couple things here and there. Um you know, I, I just, I went with the flow, you know, and a lot of the people were my friends. I'd go to CBS and I'd hang out with them. 
So I knew a lot. Uh-huh. So it was it was nice to be in a position that you can do the same for somebody else that somebody did for you. You help them put a roof over their head, food on the table, gas in their car. So I mean, you you have a ton of experience as far as like some of the people you've worked with in the past, some of the great directors and the actors we've we've mentioned already. Uh, do you have any interest in maybe directing something someday? Uh, for TV or for the silver screen or or, or, or something of that nature, or maybe sure. uh, opening an acting school or, or something along those lines. Oh, I've I've been told I should run an acting school. I've been told I should get behind the camera because I have a good eye. I mean, I, there's actually a photo of me that I have from the toy of me sitting in the camera seat, shooting camera. Because I did it. I, nice. I, I was curious. I was always inquisitive. I wanted to learn everything. I sat behind the, the sound guy, you know, the sound mixer. His name was Gene Canamese. You wouldn't know his name if it hit you in the head. The guy worked for Mel Brooks. He did Blazing Saddles. He threw the World Park One. He did 15 other films. I love Blazing Saddles. And he let me sit and teaching me sound. And the cameraman was a very well-established guy, Laszlo Kovac. He did a ton of stuff. And when I said to him, listen, I would just really learn. I'd like to learn how the camera moves and where it goes. Absolutely, no problem. You know, so, so would I want to get in the chair? Sure. You know, it just depends on the project, the people involved. You know, uh, if it's something that I can handle. Can I handle the, an Avengers movie? No, of course not. That's, that's, forget it. You know, I don't have that education. You know, but could I handle a comedy you know, a, a straight-up romance comedy or a drama, sure. You know, that just that comes down to uh, having a good eye and, and having a good ear and sort of going, yeah. being most familiar with the script to know what to shoot and how to shoot. There have been films over the last five years that people have just gone bonkers over. They love, they love, they love, and I'm like, certainly wasn't what they kept saying it was, and I'm looking at it from the standpoint of a director's eye, and does it entertain me? Does it move me emotionally? You know, that's what I look at. You know, I, I don't care CGI, this, that, the other, whatever it is. I don't care. I love Star Wars. I don't care what you put it. As long as it's halfway decent, I'm going to love it. You know, um, there, was, there was a film that I loved years ago. Okay, it's a drama. It's called Shadowland with Deborah Winger and Anthony Hopkins. Phenomenal okay. movie. The camera work is incredible. Never got the credit it deserved. You know, believe it or not, I mean, I was in high school, and I was a senior, and uh, Gandhi came out with Ben Kingsley. Probably one of one of my, as far as you know, film wise, like top ten ever made, because of the camera work and the intricacies, and you're caring mm-hmm. for the characters. You know. So, I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, people my age are not normally a fan of that kind of movie at, you know, 16, 17 years old. But that's what I went there for, and that's what I still go there for. You know, I go to the movies to be entertained, but I look at it with a different eye than most because I sat behind the camera. I totally get that. I can imagine um, what that would be like when you have that type of perspective. You can see things that, like you said, the average person doesn't. Most of us are just enamored by the the environment and the well, the visuals and the actors themselves, and you get to see a lot more than what we see. It's the thing when you watch certain things, okay? It's funny because I watched 
um, uh, 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 The Rogue the other day with Charlton Heston. There's a scene where he's talking to one okay. of the women, and it's, a two, it's just a two-shot of them left and right, and they're standing up. And there's almost no cuts in the scene. Then they sit down, and then there's one over the shoulder one way, one over the shoulder close up each way, and, and then they go back to the two shots. It is shot so simplistically. Today, it's close up, close up, close up, close up, close up, close up, two shot, close up, close up. There's so many more things that didn't need to be shot. Simplicity sometimes is is all valuable, depending on what you're mm-hmm. trying to bring across to your audience. And I mean, I I I love simplicity because it's very basic, you know. Do you want to see somebody's reaction to a certain thing? Sure. But if it's just two people having that conversation back and forth, you don't have to go back and forth, back and forth. Just leave it be as if you're the third wheel in that conversation watching it. Yeah, I can tell you have a passion for it. I can see that in your future. <laughs> no, Definitely. Listen, you, you never know. The future, the future isn't written, you know. Hopefully, I, I knock on wood, you know, I'm, I'm going on 52. Some days I feel it, and some days I feel 25. Well, I'm not too far behind you. I was born, I'm a 70s baby, so uh, 71 myself, so I understand. I'm sorry you didn't get to enjoy disco at its peak. That was a fun time. Yeah, I kind of missed you out know, on that. Get the Bee Gees and Earth, Wind, and Fire and all the other things in the songwriters era, and, you know, you were just behind that. So you're like, you know, by like 1979, 1980, disco's going away, and then it's just kind of a whole different kind of thing that happens. But, uh, you know, listen, I've, I've always said just try and have fun every single day in life. No matter what it is you're doing, things are going to be good, things are going to be bad. Enjoy a laugh. Enjoy a smile. You know, be kind. Be nice. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just one of those people. I, I, I understand that our time here is very short. We blink. And you, you can attest to this. You're, you know, right behind me. And yesterday we were both 20 and not, you know, doing whatever at 20. And what just happened? No, yeah. blinking. What happened? You know, you're, you're so right. Too many people take this thing too damn serious. You know, everything is important. Everything that's like, oh, wait a minute. Is it life threatening? No, then it's not important. It's just not that important. And that's going to do it for part one of this Q on one podcast. I enjoyed the conversation of this podcast so much that I had to go a little longer to get answers to more questions, insight to more things. So be sure to check out the next part of this podcast. Just click on the link on the website at talktoq.com and continue going from there. I can guarantee you that you're going to want to hear more of what Scott Schwartz has to say. So See you on the next part of the podcast.